0: First wind of the morning, I didn't trip on the steps on the way up here. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Neil Payne, and unfortunately, you get to spend the next 45 minutes listening to me drone on and on and on about Philippians. Uh, We're starting a new book this morning, so um, a lot of this morning will be a lot of background, um, and at the risk of sounding like a lecture or something like that, I'm going to try to make it a little bit more fun. Um, But we got about 10 weeks of this, and I promise I won't be preaching all 10 weeks. I'll be preaching two this week and next week. So if you don't like me, just deal with it for two weeks. It'll be fun. Um, but just like we do every single um, Sunday, uh, we're going to start the morning off with prayer again. Uh, if you don't know, we pray a lot. Uh, but we're going to pray okay, we're going to pray for uh, a local church in our community. We'll pray for uh, Grace Community Church just across the street over there, um, with the lead pastor, Christopher Hayslip. Uh, if I mispronounce that, sorry. Um, I don't know anything about uh, the pastor at all. I do know that I know a ton of of people that go to Grace, and I love those people, and I love Grace. So uh, we're just going to pray for them anyway, because God knows the details. We're also going to pray for an unreached people groups, uh, the Gujarati people of Myanmar, um, Burma. Uh, 35,000 people, 0.8% Christian uh, only 0.4% evangelical Christian, the other 0.4% is uh, Catholicism, but their main religion is Hinduism. So let's go ahead and start the morning off with prayer, or continue the morning in prayer. Father God, just thank you so much for who you are, God. Thank you for allowing us to be here on a Sunday in a free country, God. Um, very much so unlike the Gujarati people in uh, Burma, God, God. Um, it is a tough place to be a Christian in Burma, God, with 0.8% uh, believing in you, God, but we know that you can turn that 0.8% into 80%, and we just, just pray that fervently, God. Uh, send somebody from our membership. Send somebody from Grace's membership. Send somebody from Greenville, Texas. Uh, just send people to your people in Burma, Father God. Um, God, just, just help us uh, know how to serve the Burmese people, God, whether that be through prayer, um, God, just help your name be um, just a, just worshiped there in Burma this morning, even with just a small number. Um, God, we also pray for uh, Grace Community Church, uh, Pastor Christopher Hayslip. God, and the community that they have there at Grace. Um, we just pray that they be worshiping you this morning. Uh, we just pray that they be glorifying your name in such a manner, God. Um, help us as Crosspoint to know how to be uh, partners in the gospel with, with Grace Community, God, Help us to enjoy the same creator that they're enjoying this morning. Um, and ultimately, God, just thank you for allowing us to be in the same community, uh, just teammates in the spread of the gospel. And lastly, God, I just ask that you pray for me um, or, or be with me as I'm sharing um, this morning. Um, God, just expose your word uh, through me. As many babbles and stumbles as I'm going to have, God, I just ask that, that you get the glory um, and you uh, allow your people to just worship well. Um, God, we just love you. We love you. We love you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So, also, something about me is I'm very linear in nature, so I'll have a a nice, tidy outline. And what it looks like this morning is we're just going to read the passage. Uh, We're going to read Philippians 1, 1 through 11, and then we're going to go back to Philippians, um, just kind of go back in time to the history of Philippi and to kind of look at like what the people were like. And and Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. So we'll kind of deep dive into history. It'll be a little bit of a history lesson. And then we're going to go back and read the passage again with that knowledge, um, with that understanding. And lastly, um, I just have about 37 application points. And then we'll get out of here just in time for the uh, Kansas City Chiefs game, as Michael was saying. And I am a Patrick Mahomes fan So that is something that we have to worry about. Um, But what I will say is if you hear anything that's really clever or catchy or witty or cool, I promise it did not come from me. I want to give credit where credit's due. Um, I did a lot of studying over guys like Mark Dever, John Piper, Matt Chandler, Peter O'Brien, David Platt, so on and so forth. So, So I stand on those guys' shoulders. I promise I'm not that witty and smart and funny. So if you hear something awesome, definitely know that it's from those guys and I promise it's not from me. With that being said, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 1, 1 through 1-11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the, day, from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I, told, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you All with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, in typical Neil Payne fashion, we're going to have a timeline. And I made slides and I put them on a black background this time because I felt like that's way cooler. So don't, don't get like, if you can't read anything that's up here, that's completely okay. I can barely read it. That's fine. I just want to kind of show you where we are in history in the book of Philippians specifically. And I wanted to start with Jesus' birth. So obviously um, these dates are kind of, you know, th- there are good guesses. Uh, you know, you might see other dates elsewhere, but we're going to go with these because I'm up here this morning. So... Uh, Jesus was born 64 B.C., sometime in that time frame. The cross happened about 30 A.D. or 33, Jesus' death and resurrection. 34 A.D., Stephen was martyred, Paul was saved. Those are two very big deals. The church at Philippi was founded in 48 to 51 A.D. on Paul's second missionary journey. And we'll talk about that a little bit. And then Paul was arrested in Rome in 62 AD, likely Rome, and that's where the book of Philippians was actually written while Paul was in jail. So not too very long after that, Paul and Peter were both martyred in 64-68 AD. And something that I put up there all the time is because I want us to know that we're talking about real people in a very real time frame. So I like to put dates up there that you might have heard of. Obviously, the Colosseum is a big deal in Rome. The Colosseum was started in 70 A.D. by Vespasian and finished by his son in 88 A.D. Titus. Um, And then John dies on the island of Patmos in 100 A.D., which kind of closes out the New Testament era. So the New Testament kind of spans from, give or take, about 30 A.D. all the way to about 90 to 100 A.D. And then a couple of more uh, important dates. 1517, we got Martin Luther doing the whole Protestant Reformation thing. That's a very important date. Figured I'd put that up there. And then lastly, cross point fellowship in 2021 AD, because we are part of the story. So that's a little bit about the timeline. Now let's talk about the history of Philippi and kind of how it got started. So Kate put another slide up there. If you can't see it again, that's totally okay. If it just looks like a kidney, that's fine. But it's actually a picture of the city of Philippi in Paul's day. So Um, pretty cool. Paul would have come from the Aegean Sea here. He would have walked into the uh, Neapolis gate. Um, He would have trounced around here in town. He would have gotten locked up at that prison right there. We'll talk about that. This is the marketplace, uh, the center of town or the forum that that we'll talk about a little bit as well. And then he would have headed on out here, the uh, Gagaitis gate um, onto Thessalonica, which is where the Church of Thessalonians would be founded later on. I just wanted to throw that up there just so you had like when I read a book, I hope there's a lot of pictures in it. So that's kind of where, uh, where I like slides. Um, so the city of Philippi itself, um, taking out the, the Christianity portion of it, just the city itself was founded, um, it's a Macedonian city, about 30 BC. It is in Europe. It was uh, founded by a guy named Octavian. You might've uh, heard of him as the Emperor Augustus. Uh, it was wealthy, it was a very wealthy city. It was situated near gold mines and silver mines. It was also a huge agricultural hub. So the city itself was really, really wealthy. Um, it was a Roman colony, very, very, very Roman. Uh, what does that mean? Well, one thing is whenever someone, a Roman soldier or something, had um, like some high accolades, maybe they made it really high up, maybe they did really well in battle, they actually got a plot of land. Um, and one of the major cities that they gave out plots of land would be in Philippi. So it was really full of Roman soldier like, veterans, if you will. So that's kind of a cool little factotum. It has nothing to do with this morning, but I felt like it needed to be said. Um, So there was a wide range of religions in Philippi as well. Um, Obviously, there was zero Christians at the time before Paul walked in. Uh, It had a small Jewish community, and we'll talk about that very small Jewish community. The main religion was Roman paganism, so basically the worship of gods and stuff like that, statues, all kinds of weird stuff. They were doing rain dances. Um, It got a little bit weird. But, so that's kind of like what the city itself looks like. So now let's jump into the Christian side of the things. And um, the way the church in Philippi was established is one of the wildest stories I've ever, I've ever like, studied. Uh, it's pretty cool. Um, you, can, you can see this. The, the cool thing about Philippi is you can actually read the verse-by-verse account on how the church was started in Acts 16, 6-40. I'm not going to read all that, but I am going to tell the story just so we know what we're dealing with, just so we know how this place came about, how the people are who they are. And and I will tell you this, it came at a very big cost. Paul gave a huge cost. It was a hard-fought one church in Philippi, and we'll see that. So, um... If you don't know anything about Paul, and and that's completely fine if you don't, next slide, uh, he went on three missionary journeys. And so Philippi was founded on the second missionary journey, um, the Church of Philippi. And again, if you can't read it, that's totally fine. Um, But starting kind of here in the Jerusalem area, um, he went up to Antioch, he crossed over, went to uh, Lystra, and then came over here across the Aegean Sea, and this is where Philippi is. Right here. So it's really the first church he founded in Europe. And then you see other names like Thessalonica, where we get the Thessalonians from. And then you come on down here, you see Athens, you see Corinth, which is where the Corinthians are. Um, And then Ephesus, which is where the letter to the Ephesians was written. And then he pops across the sea again and back to Jerusalem. So that's kind of the journey that he made whenever he stopped into Philippi. And so here's what the story looks like. And, and this is going to be like a, like a, a story time, so, um, so it'll be fun. We'll have a good time. Anyway, here's what, here's what happened. So the Holy Spirit tells Paul and Silas where they want to go. They, you know, the Holy Spirit says, hey, Paul, go here, go here, don't go here, stay away from here. I'm going to put this down because that's dangerous. Um, go here, don't go here, move here, you know, cross this sea here. And so they end up at Philippi. And so Paul does what Paul does. He finds a small Jewish community because he wants to go pray. Um, So likely uh, there was a Jewish house of prayer next to a stream and so Paul and Silas walk up and it's a group of ladies worshiping God and praying as one does in a Jewish house of prayer. So uh, Paul starts spitting the gospel just like Paul does and uh, God opens the heart of a a lady named Lydia and Lydia is, is a pretty interesting character. She's a merchant that sells purple goods um, and she, she hears the gospel and accepts it and loves it and takes Paul and Silas back to her house. Um, and Paul and Silas do what Paul and Silas do, and they preach the gospel to the house of Lydia, and the whole household gets saved. Everybody's like one big happy Brady Bunch family. It's having a good time. Um, you know, like the gospel, like that's the founding of the church in Philippi was this one family that started with Lydia, um, God opening Lydia's hearts for... Um, for salvation, essentially. And so the, the scripture doesn't tell us how long they hang out, but it's a pretty cool story because then Paul goes, he's, he, Paul and Silas are actually headed back to the Jewish house of prayer. And so they're just walking along, walking along, and this is where it gets really, really interesting. Uh, along the road, they run into a young slave girl who's demon possessed, and that demon possessed uh, or that demon that she's possessed with, gives her the ability to tell fortunes. And so she actually makes her owners extremely rich just by fortune telling, uh, telling people, people's you know, fortunes and stuff like that. And so get this, this demon-possessed gal, the scripture says, walks around and follows Paul and Silas for days, yelling this phrase, "'These men are servants of the Most High God "'who proclaim to you the way of salvation.'" So I can imagine this, just Paul and Silas walking around and this demon-possessed girl just yelling at them the whole time, this same phrase for days. And get this, Paul gets annoyed, as in one does, right? He's probably trying to sleep and she's yelling at him. He gets annoyed and he turns around and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, get out. Cast out this demon from this gal. Deed's done. We're all like, woo, yeah, go Paul. But the owners don't like that because now they don't have mailbox money. They don't have a fortune telling uh, you know, slave girl who make them money. So they get mad at Paul and Silas after they hear what happens. They go and find Paul and Silas. They take Paul and Silas to the middle of the town um, and coerce the whole crowd and the, the people of Philippi to attack Paul and Silas uh, for what they've done. Not only that, uh, they strip Paul and Silas down, they beat them with rods, and then, but wait, there's more, they throw them in jail. And not just in jail, but into the inner jail, um, which is not a good place to be. So all this because they cast out a demon. And again, it's, it just gets a little bit crazier. This is my favorite part of the story. It's midnight at the jail, and this is a part of the story that we've probably are all heard. Uh, midnight, Paul and Silas can't sleep, they're shackled up, um, and so what do they do? They start praising God. They start praying. They start worshiping. They start singing hymns. And next thing you know, God sends an earthquake, blows the doors to the prison open. The shackles fall off. We're all like, hallelujah. Well, the jailer wakes up and the jailer wakes up, runs to the prison. He sees that the prison doors are open. He immediately thinks all the prisoners have escaped. So the scripture says he's about to fall on his sword. He's about to commit suicide because of the shame that he had for letting prisoners go. And then Paul comes in, he runs out, he says, whoa, hey, bro, we're all here. We haven't gone anywhere. We're still in prison. We're we're here. Don't kill yourself. So the jailer, because of uh, what he had seen, just begged. He basically asked Paul, how do I be saved? How do I get saved? Because he was in awe of the Lord because of what he had done. So Paul and Silas uh, and the jailer all go to the jailer's house. And that very night, the scripture says that very night, the jailer, um, and his entire household gets saved and baptized. So we have family number two of the Philippian church. We start. We have the the birth of the Philippian church starting to happen here. Next, and then here's where it goes awry again. Next, um, the town officials kind of kind of hear a little bit of what's happened, so they send the police to Paul and Silas, and really the jailer. They send the police to the jailer and tell Paul, or to tell Paul and Silas, "Hey, you guys can just go, just like quietly leave town, please." Um, and Paul said, "Whoa, wait, 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 hold on! You just completely threw us in jail for no apparent reason, no apparent reason at all. And oh, by the way, we're Roman citizens. Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, which would have been a huge no-no, right? You don't, I mean." Think about it today. Is you would not get thrown in jail for no good reason at all. You have to have a crime charged against you. So Paul and Silas said, "No, we want a public apology. Like apologize to us in front of everybody." And so the officials of the town do what good politicians do, and they issued a public apology. And then they walk arm in arm out with Paul and Silas. And then as soon as they get out of the gates, they say, "You got to get out of town. Like you guys are causing too much trouble in this town." So. Paul and Silas are certainly uh, amenable to that, and they go and visit the people that had been converted to or converted in Philippi, um, encouraging them and you know um, praying for them, and then essentially they leave and go on to Thessalonica, which is where the Thessalonian church would be founded. So, nonetheless, um, it's it's a pretty interesting story, and later on in Acts. Uh, the town officials of Thessalonica would actually say, These are the men who turned the world upside down. These are the men who turned the world upside down. And I think that we can easily see that. They certainly did. They were attacked, beaten, stripped, jailed, and then rescued for the sake of the gospel being spread in Philippi. It was a, a hard fought, won battle for the church in Philippi. Agree? I love it. So, so nobody's asleep yet. We got, a, we got a few more to go, then maybe maybe it'll be some nodding nah, nah. off. But um, so fast forward 10 to 12 years. Paul, you can imagine where he is. He's in jail again, 10 to 12 years later, and he's pinning the letter to the Philippians. Um, so. He is writing this letter. We know he's in Rome because uh, it talks about the Praetorium, which is Caesar's household. So he's in jail, in Caesar's household. And at the end of the letter, he actually says, oh yeah, and the guards send their love too. So Paul's so crazy, he's still witnessing to people. He's still witnessing to the very people that he's shackled next against. Um, he's, he's witnessing to the judges, uh, to the soldiers, um, and to his guards, and likely, um, just, just as a side note, likely Paul had been back to Philippi a couple of times because when we actually do get to the text, we will see that he has a deep connection and a deep um, concern and care for the Philippians that he's basically like old friends with them. Um, so that is something that we'll see. Um, so the backdrop of Philippi is that it's a wealthy town, but just like most things, the Christians in that town are not wealthy at all. They've kind of lost their jobs. Uh, they're kind of you know, radical. And so uh, they were not wealthy. They didn't hold very much money. And they were getting persecuted. We just went through the book of James. Um, James was martyred in 62 AD. The book of Philippians was written in 62 AD. Jerusalem was not that far away from Philippi. So um, it was pretty tough to be a Christian, and I think it's easy to see these days um, whenever you hear, oh, well, back in the day, Christians were getting persecuted. Back in the day, it was different. Um, Well, in 2006, I went to Tokyo, and Tokyo is like literally first world city, like the head of fashion and all this awesome stuff, Um, and periodically, they would see, oh, you're, you're a white American person. You must be Christian, so I would get these random Christians come up to me, um, and there's not very many of them in Tokyo. And, and we would talk about their story. We would go to lunch. We would go get coffee. And most of them had lost their jobs. Their family had disowned them. And they were absolutely broke just because they had become Christians. So it's easy in America to be like, ah, that, that doesn't really happen these days. But as it turns out, it actually is still very prevalent in the world. The people that we prayed for in Burma, um, man, it is not easy at all. So, kind of to bring it back to, to where we are, uh, despite the Philippian Christians being broke and suffering for their faith, they still regularly prayed for Paul and actually sent him support money to fund his missions. And so, the letter to the Philippians is actually like a missionary support letter, thanking them for everything they had do, uh, they had done. So, Paul was encouraging. He was really encouraging them. So, we see that Paul in 62 AD is in jail in Rome. Um, And first of all, to be in jail in the old days, uh, I guess much like today, it's a source of great shame. Some great shame came about around around Paul for just being in jail. But not only that, he's in jail in Rome, which is like, if you're in jail in Rome, that means you've already gone through other jails and steps to get there. It's like going to the Supreme Court. You don't have a whole lot of chance left. You're either going to be executed Or you're going to be let free, but you're probably not going to be let free. I mean, hope is absolutely running to a thin margin. But um, so the, the Philippians are kind of freaking out a little bit because they have the person that started their church and one of their very, 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 very best friends who's concerned for them and stuff like that, they actually are scared they're terrified that the gospel is going to be halted because Paul is in jail and Paul is about to be executed. Keep in mind, the gospel is not that old at this point. It's about 30 years old. It's not that old. The Philippians think, I just gave up my entire life, the, the, the Christians at Philippi, at Philippi, I just gave up my entire life. Everything I have to be a part of this, this gospel-centric church And now you're like the person that is heading this thing up is in jail and about to die. What are we going to do? We're in shambles here. So what does Paul do? He writes a beautiful letter. And though it might be a church that is young, scared, and discouraged, they are people who had generously given their very limited resources, who consistently prayed for him, and are very concerned for Paul's well-being And the spread of the gospel through him. He basically says, Paul's saying, it's all good. I'm content. And despite the fact that I'm about to be executed, I'm fine. I know exactly where I'm going. And oh yeah, because I'm in jail, so many more Christians have been emboldened by this, that the gospel is actually spreading faster and more rampant than anything could ever do that we could ever think of, basically. So the gospel is fine. And this is yet another example of what the devil intends for harm, God uses for his glory. He actually used Paul's, um, we'll call it prison ministry, but I guess uh, he was actually in prison, so that's kind of weird. Uh, but but he, God uses that to actually spread the gospel even further, to embolden those Christians around. So kind of uh, kind of switching, uh, switching tones here a little bit, or switching uh, uh, gears, uh, the letter is actually written... In a way that is very, very, very like, like, doty. Like that's probably not a word, but like Paul is is loving. Like he's yearning for the Philippians to actually um, love Christ. I mean, not only is he like, like he is he is it's like a like a father talking to a son in the most tender way, and the letter is actually arranged in something called a chiasm, and a chiasm is pretty cool. It's a big fancy theological short word um, that. Think of like a sandwich. And so you've got bread and bread, and then you got lettuce and lettuce and tomato and tomato. And we'll call this a patty melt. So then you got like a like a Kobe beef morsel right in the middle. If you're a vegetarian, maybe it's an impossible burger or something like that. I don't really know. But you've got an idea at the front of the letter, and then a connection to the back of the letter. And then you've got another idea as the lettuce, and then another idea as the lettuce. And then same with the tomato, and it all comes to a pinnacle right in the middle of the letter. And so, if you think about movies today, it normally like is a build up for about three and a half hours, and then there's this big deal, and then two minutes later you walk out of the theater. Well, Paul doesn't write that way. It's more like you have a build up, build up, build up, huge, big point. And then kind of a slow taper off to the end. And so the pinnacle of this letter is chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. And we won't read it, but uh, it's Christ's example of humility. We'll get there. But that's like the major staple of this letter and something that I'm awfully excited to hear. I think it's Terry. Is that you? Some, somebody's preaching that. I'm excited about it. Um, but before we go on, last thing, I promise we're like the work is there. We're getting there. And then I'll go fast, I promise. Um, so the last thing, kind of a working definition of what humility looks like. And so this letter, the, the title of, that I, of the sermon that I kind of put out is Endure with Humility. Humility is like one of the major themes in this book. Um, and we kind of have this watered down view of what humility looks like. So let's climb back in the day of the ancient Romans. Um, I talked about this a little bit whenever uh, I talked about James, and I know uh, Jason talked about it quite a bit. Um, it's a very honor-centric culture. They really want the, their accolades, and like they want peer worship. They, I mean, think about, and I think I used this already, but think about Gladiator, the movie. They use strength and honor. Like, that's their, that's their salute, strength and honor. They really are an honor-driven, glory-driven, um, um, community, or, or I guess, I guess the worldview is that of very like, look at me, look at me, I am a hero. I am a big deal. Humility in this day would have carried such a negative connotation. It was synonymous with weakness and servility. Weakness and servility. That's what humility, uh, that's what the connotation of humility was back in the day. Nowadays, if you say, oh man, he or she is humble, that's like the greatest compliment you could ever give ever. Matter of fact, think about it this way. Whenever you say someone is from humble, uh, humble beginnings, what does that mean? That's like the nicest possible way to say they were broke. I mean, they grew up rough, right? But it's so nice. Back in the day, not so much. So uh, I think that's one thing that we need to kind of kind of get our minds wrapped around because Uh, you know, Jesus obviously does what Jesus does and completely changed everything about the definition of humility and what people, basically how people were supposed to live. So, without further ado, we're finally going to get into the Scripture, and I promise I'm on page 3 of about 32, so we will get there. But, I'm just kidding, I'm almost done, actually. So, Um, Let's go ahead, and the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to read, like, two verses at a time, two or three verses at a time, and then kind of peel back the onion, and then we'll just work through all 11 verses up front, and then we'll see where it takes us. So, Philippians 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is thousands of miles away in a Roman prison about to be executed, likely, and what is he doing? What is he doing? Dever puts it like this. He says he's thinking of the Philippians, he's writing to them, he's praying for them, he's thanking God for them, and later on we'll see that he's sending the very few people that are still with him, um, Epaphroditus and Timothy, I call them E-money, and he's encouraging them and longing for their good in Christ. So what is Paul doing? He is serving them. He is serving them. So let's not take for granted that first verse that says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Let's not take that for granted. He is serving them. And this emphasis on service anticipates and informs the rest of the letter, especially that pinnacle that we talked about in the chapter two, verse 5, 11, in the humility of Christ. So we'll get there. Let's go to verse three through five. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always, and every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul prays for the Philippians with joy. This is key because joy comes from the partnership in the gospel which involves each other, um, financial support, and deep concern and care for Paul's well-being. So I want to flip over to chapter 4 uh, verse 15 through 19 and you'll kind of see what I mean by chiasm here chapter 4, verse 15 through 19. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, Macedonia, no church entered into the partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and, once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Ephroditus. Uh, Epaphroditus, the gifts, e money, uh, the gifts that you sent, and fragrant offerings and sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and may God and my God will supply you with every need of yours according to the riches of His glory in Christ. So as you can see, see what I mean by that chiasm. He's talking about how amazing their partnership is in the beginning, and then he's talking about how amazing their partnership at the end is. And so one thing I want to point out is Paul has great joy for the Philippians even in the most dangerous of situations, even in the most difficult circumstances, Paul is still writing to the Philippians with joy. Let's go to verse six. And I'm sure of this, that he who has began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Something to point out here is Paul is sure of God's commitment to the Philippians. Spiritual progress is not rooted in us, Thank God. It's rooted in what he is doing, what he has done, and what he will do. It has very, very, very little to do with us. And thank God. I can take a sigh of relief uh, because I know I'm a knucklehead. So some of you might not agree uh, with me on this, but uh, this is a very strong verse uh, that, that to let us know that we have a sovereign God. And that's okay. We have a sovereign God. The Philippians and you and I can have confidence um, that them and us as believers, um, that God who has saved us will not let us go. And that's a relief. Verse 6 very vividly tells us that God saved us and will not let us go. Knowing that our progress is rooted in God's assurance is, is comforting, right? We are rooted in him. Um, And so he does the heavy lifting, and he does the work. Let's go to verse 7 and 8. It is right for me uh, to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me in the grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul longs for the Philippians, not with like some grandiose, uh, like, oh, like missionary evangelism type of deal. I love the whole entire world. He specifically states that he loves the Philippians. He's got a sniper-round love for the Philippians. Remember, this was a hard-fought-won battle for the Church of Philippi. And anytime, if you've ever been a part of a sports team or, or you've like really, really, really worked hard for something... You hold that in high regards. You're like, man, that's it. We did it. We did it. You know, we won. And so that's kind of the the tone that I feel like Paul is using here. Paul's imprisonment would have been a source of great shame, like I mentioned. But nonetheless, the people, the, the Christians in Philippi, stood with him in solidarity. They stood with him despite the shame of imprisonment. He was so encouraged by this that he was sharing the gospel to his captors. As I mentioned before, he was sharing the gospel to the soldiers that were chained right next to him, um, and it discusses that a little bit later in Philippians. So let's go ahead and, and do the last chunk here, verses 9 through 11. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So, Paul prays here that love may abound in knowledge. This knowledge should abound so that they discern what is best. Their love should be a discerning love. In other words, wise love makes wise choices, and foolish love makes terrible choices. He says they should have wise love such that their lives reflect the righteousness until Christ returns. So he's saying, until Christ returns, act right. Your righteousness should be that of Christ. You should be image bearers of Christ, not only now, but for the length. You should be enduring in Christ's love. And halfway through verse 10, I'll read verse 10 again. It says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That and so really should translate as and as so remaining pure and blameless blameless until the day of Christ." You hear this tone of endurance in Paul running that race. Paul wants their relationship, the Philippians to have a relationship with Christ and with with each other that has an eternal perspective. Hope in the final day is likely keeping Paul himself in high spirits while he's in prison. He's looking forward to the gospel and as a matter of fact in verse 21 he says, and we'll get there again, but in verse 21 he says to live is is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying, Hold loosely to what you have here on earth. Hold loosely, because one day you will be in glory and have that eternal mind set and that eternal perspective. So one thing I also uh, want to point out here, Paul ends the phrase with or Paul ends this little segment with, to the glory and praise of God. And now when I'm reading that in my Bible, that is like a phrase that gets t- tossed out often. Um, I just kind of glance over it most of the time. But as I was kind of picking these verses apart um, and started thinking, I was like, man, to the glory and praise of God is a big deal. That's what motivates Paul. It is to the glory of God, not to the glory of himself, not to the glory of the Philippians, not to the glory of anything but Christ. And to me, that is humility. His motivation is Christ and not him of himself. Humility doesn't mean poor self-esteem. It means we don't need the glory. It means we don't live for ourselves, and it means he is our motivation and not anything else. So uh, we're kind of getting to the last point of the sermon here, and I promise I don't have 37 application points. I have one, just one. Now, it's rather lengthy, but it's just one. And here it is. If you're a note-taker, this is, this is the one have joy in any circumstance, dangerous, difficult, or not, because your circumstance doesn't influence Christ's commitment to you. Let's read verse 6 again. And I'm sure of this, that he who has began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Dever puts it this way, Have you ever been to an optometrist? Maybe you went to Dr. Ketchum's office. And so when I, so I went to Dr. Ketchum's office in my late 20s, several years back, a couple years back, Um, I'd never been to an eye doctor in my life, had no idea that I even needed to go to an eye doctor. Um, And then Lauren was like, hey, you might want to get your eyes checked. I was like, okay. So I go and, and Dr. Ketchum lovingly, lovingly tells me that I'm blind as a bat. I just thought blurry eyes were normal. I just thought everything looked like Sasquatch, you know, but I guess not. Um, so the first thing that we do when he walks into the office, I say maybe the middle thing, is he gets the lens switchy thingy. Anybody ever been to that? You like put it up against you. I don't know. It's it's lens switchy thingy, right, Dr. Ketchum? I think that's what it's called. Medical term. Um, so you get these lens switchy thingies and, and it seems like you switch it about a thousand times. It's like, which, what looks better? This or this? This or this? This or this? This, 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 maybe this? And so... As it goes, you get like a sharper and sharper and sharper vision. Like your vision gets better each and every time. Like an optometrist, God is flipping the lenses of our faith through the exact combination of circumstances. One lens after another, gradually sharpening our spiritual sight. With each circumstance, with each flip of the lens, we learn to rely on him a bit more. Our circumstances are molding us. That is one of the ways that he works out our salvation. In order to follow that call, we need the humility that Christ himself showed on the cross. The warming heartbeat of this letter is the contentment that Christ had in the Father in doing the Father's will. And that heart should transform our own. How do we live a Christian life? Well, you find joy in God himself and in God alone. How else could Ananiram Judson spend 17 months in a Burmese prison and do radical things in Burma? Because of Adoniram, we have that 0.8% Christian in Burma. How else could John Bunyan survive 12 years in prison, all the while writing Pilgrim's Progress? How else could Jim Elliott fly a team into South America, into a super hostile, cannibalistic tribe, not knowing what the outcome would be? How else could Paul pray and sing hymns in prison despite his captivity and certain death? How else could Jesus himself endure the cross, showing himself fully sufficient for our transgressions and being raised again on the third day? How else can we wake up in the morning on a day like today? Dare we think our own circumstances are so dire, so challenging, so discouraging that God cannot be in control? Not at all. We look to the cross we look to the cross. We find contentment in Christ and in nothing else but him. I believe that's what Philippians is gonna teach us uh, over the next 10 weeks or so. Uh, we just have to humble ourselves and endure. So let's pray. Um, Father God, you're so good. You are so, so good. God, thank you for, um, for Paul, first and foremost, uh, just pinning this letter, this beautiful support letter to the Philippians. Thank you for uh, Lydia. And thank you for the jailer, God, that they were so emboldened by you that, 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 God, you just poured into them and then out of that became the church of Philippi. And God, your church at Philippi was amazing. Of course, it had its problems, don't we all? But it was incredible in comparison to the other churches of the New Testament. And so we just praise you for their example, God. We ask that you expose uh, what you did all those 2,000 years ago in that church, Father, and just teach, us, um, just teach us what you will in these next 10 weeks. God, we love you. We love you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.